Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Really special show coming for you today. Peter Doyle from Horizon Kinetics had a really interesting chat. I first listened to Peter on Anthony Pompliano's podcast and was very impressed. And a longtime listener of the show has been prompting me to, to reach out to, to, to Peter. Uh, I really appreciate you you doing that and and setting this up. I will I will not mention who that person was uh, in the uh, interest of OPSEC, but uh, you know who you are and a big shout out. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for making this happen. So Peter came on the show to talk to us about Bitcoin from his world, and that is managing people's money as a uh, and as an investment advisor and portfolio manager and decades of years of experience doing this. I really appreciate Peter coming on and laying all of this out and giving us a, a, a peek into that world, which many of us really have no exposure to at all. Hope you enjoy the show. I hope you get a lot out of this. I certainly did. There's a lot of great information here and some enjoyable stories. So before we get into it, you know I'm going to give the usual shout out to the guys that have helped me along this journey. That's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Obi and the team doing amazing work over in the UK. If you're in the UK, if you have access to the UK banking system, you can go ahead, open an account with Coinfloor, start saving your Bitcoin, and you can do that with an auto buy service, which they offer. Across the pond, our friends at swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten have you covered now in every single state. They pulled it off. They are now live in New York. If you're in New York, you can start stacking with Swan. I know you guys have been waiting for it. Everybody around the world, it seems, have been waiting for Swan to, to open up in, in their country. And you guys in New York, you've been waiting very patiently in the US. They've got it done. You can start stacking with them. If you use the code slash bitten, you will get $10 free. Go check them out. Go start stacking your sats. I hope you enjoy the show. Again, couldn't do this without Adam at Adam Woodhams One, putting all of this together at Jim Reaper Music for the website and the boys over at 21ism doing great work. Let's go, Bitcoiners. We, uh, we're all in this together. Enjoy the show, guys. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining us today is Peter Doyle from Horizon Kinetics. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, are you two conspiring about your, your questions behind me? <laughs> yeah, okay. Lauren, are you going to be easy or tough on Peter? Um, I don't know. You well, Caitlin, are you, are you prepped? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Okay, go for it. What is a wealth manager? A wealth manager. So we um, 
your dad or somebody that you might know, grandpa, something like that, might have accumulated a certain amount of money in their life. And then we help them. Their, their profession may not be investments. And we help them invest that money uh, to help it to grow and to preserve that capital for them. So that's, that's essentially all it is. It's an interesting job, though. I'll tell you that there's, there's no boundary to your education. And I spend a great deal of my day reading across many different topics um, and helping me give insight into potentially good investments. And it's pretty stressful because you're looking after people's money. Right. And I, th I think um, that gets played down a little bit, but I want to talk to Peter about that in, in, in a little bit. So, uh, Lauren, how about you? Are you ready? Just remembered it. Um, so what do you do? What do I do? So uh, in addition to being a dad of three children, I, I <laughs> manage money on behalf of people and I try to do a good job and grow their wealth and make sure that anyone that comes in contact with myself or my firm has a good experience and their assets grow with time and they're able to afford the things that they want in life, including sending their kids to school, buying a home, et cetera. Um, so things like that. Cool. And did you have a question about New York? Yes, yes, you do. Right. What's it like to, to live in or close to New York? So very congested, um, lots of people, um, <laughs> but it's particularly fun when you're in your early 20s and um, New York City has a lot of energy and you pick up on that energy and there's uh, you know a lot of things to do in the city. They call it the city that never sleeps. Um, you can do find things to do at two o'clock in the morning, perhaps that things you shouldn't be doing. Um, but there's a lot of cultural things to do as well. Lots of museums, great artwork. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing city. Um, right now it's being poorly run. <laughs> um, and hopefully it comes back after coronavirus. Um, but I, I, I still think it's a great city. Um, my youngest child, my youngest daughter, would like me to buy an apartment there so she could use it uh, at her leisure. Um, but I don't think I'll be doing that anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin's eyes just lit up. She honestly, I mean, you know, you. I love New York. You, she loves New York. We visited New York, <laughs> and now she's been binge watching Friends, and she has. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Gossip Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I got another question. Okay, Lauren, fire away. Last so, one. So, when you ever go to New York and you don't plan to shop, and then straight away you see either Das or like your daughter's spot, like those <laughs> shops. Do they go like running inside buying some clothes or just, you know? <laughs> so um, my two oldest are surprisingly very, uh, have very little interest in collecting material goods. And my youngest seems to enjoy collecting material goods. Um, and the conversation that I have with her is very different that I tell her, I'm happy to spend any amount of money on your health, on your education, I'm happy to take you on a nice vacation. I'm happy to live in a nice home. Everything else you're going to have to negotiate with me. And um, I say no a lot of times, even though I know I could afford to say yes, but I don't think it's in her best interest for me to say yes. <laughs> and Caitlin's given me lots of sideward glances. As you're... <laughs> okay, girls, thank you very much for asking Peter those questions. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Nice meeting you. Thank you, Peter. And... Thanks for agreeing to come on the show. Really appreciate this. Oh, happy to do it. So I wanted to, uh, there are lots of, lots of uh, rabbit holes I want to get into, uh, but let's, um, let's wind it back and let, let's talk about when you were growing up and what 
you know, where, where was that? What did the uh, what did the landscape look like? And what kind of drew you into into the profession that you've ultimately been doing for decades now? So, um, as, I, as I mentioned, it was actually easy for me to identify. I'm, I'm one of eight children, and my father passed away when I was four years old. So I have just one younger sister and six older siblings. And um, my mother worked two jobs and, you know, trying to raise us and put food on the table and those types of things. So even though I think I had a, actually a very enjoyable childhood, money was always an issue in our house and uh, just growing up without a lot of money. And, and um, I think that was kind of my interest initially. Um, as, as a kid, I never really wanted for material things. So I don't feel like I was ever deprived of things, even though I, in retrospect, I had virtually nothing. Um, and I think that carried over. I, money for me has always been a means to freedom and giving me the ability to do what I want and the time that I want to do it and not having to answer to somebody. That was really my sole purpose in basically trying to accumulate any type of wealth. And how did that, what, what, what led you down that path? Obviously, high school and then an interest at some stage during college. Uh, how did it all kind of pan out for you? So I had multiple uh, f- triggers for me. Um, I had over, older siblings who worked on Wall Street, and I saw that they were having some success, and I had an interest in that, and my mom had worked on Wall Street earlier in her lifetime. So I was buying stocks from the time I was probably 10 or 11 years old with whatever money I got from newspaper routes or cutting uh, lawns in the neighborhood. Um, and then I was working actually one summer in college and I was painting houses. And I think at the time the minimum wage was maybe $3.10. And the person was paying me $15 an hour, which was an extraordinarily high salary at the time. And I sit there, and I'm a really bright kid, and I'm, I'm thinking, if he can pay me $15 an hour, how much must he be making? <laughs> so I looked around. I said I had a paintbrush. There's a ladder. I said I can collect all of these things myself, and I went into business myself the following week, painting houses. And instead of making, let's say, $600, $800 a week, I was soon making $2,000 a week as a college student. And that was an absolute incredible amount of money, and I was able to pay for a good chunk of my own college education as a result of that. And then um, one of my college courses, I was in a class with a professor who happened to be in the same class as Warren Buffett at Columbia University. I went to St. John's University just outside of Manhattan, in Queens, New York. And he's talking about buying a dollar's worth of value for 50 cents. And I said, well, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. And it was very practical. And he went through some examples. And I said, okay, this is something that I, I'm, I would be interested in. So I became aware of Warren Buffett at that time. And I started reading up on who he was. And I, not too distant future, I owned Berkshire Hathaway personally, uh, buying it with whatever savings I had, et cetera. And I, I said, okay, like any, any profession, you're trying to learn from the best, and I identified Warren Buffett very early on in my career as being one of the best and tried to say, okay, how did he, what path did he use to become successful, et cetera. And that was kind of what hooked me into it. And as I got into the business, I started a, at a company called Bankers Trust Company, which, is now, which ultimately became acquired by Deutsche Bank. I worked in the portfolio management division. And uh, one of the people that I worked close by was, later became my partner at Horizon Kinetics and is the uh, CEO of the company. 
um, I soon identified him as being much more intelligent than anyone else that worked there. And I kind of became his unofficial assistant and learned a lot from him. Um, so that was kind of the genesis in my entrance into the financial world. So we worked at Bankers Trust Company for about a decade together. And then we left and we started a company called Horizon Asset Management in 1994. And two years later, I started a second company with a brother of mine and another gentleman uh, called Kinetics Asset Management. And we had the distinction of starting the first long-only internet mutual fund. And it was coming because of the research that we were doing. We're kind of value-oriented investors. But we were finding these companies that had more cash on the balance sheet than they had the entire market capitalization, no debt. And you're getting this free call option on these things called internet stocks that we knew nothing about, just perfectly honest with you. But it didn't matter to me because I wasn't paying anything for them. And kind of being at the right place at the right time and really just acting on it and not being afraid to start something was really kind of the what what I would say led to our success as a firm and, and in both organizations. Do you remember any of those early ones that you were finding? Oh, sure. Uh, the, the one that I was thinking about is a company called CMGI, which stood for College Marketing Group. And College Marketing Group would exactly what it sounds. They would sell things in bookstores, et cetera. And the CEO of the company at the time was making investments in companies like Lycos and a whole host of other companies. And the company had a market capitalization of less than 300 million, and it had cash and marketable securities on their balance sheet of over 300 million, and it had no debt. So we were really buying something below its cash value, really a kind of a, a Graham and Dodd value type stock, and certainly Buffett S type stock. And we were getting this free call option on all those companies in there. That, that company in the technology and internet craze went from 300 million to $30 billion. So we made a lot of money along the way. Uh, we sold out at, at $3 billion when we could no longer justify it, and we thought it was insane. And so subsequently, it went up tenfold, but we made up plenty of money um, from $300 million to $3 billion. That's crazy. And how many other stories were out there at that, at that stage? So yeah, so uh, uh, just, the, just the whole start of the um, kinetics and the internet fund is, is kind of a nice story. And kind of, really, the, one of the things that I would, I would like your listeners to hear and, and understand about me is that you really just need to act on it. So we were told starting an internet fund, a mutual fund, you needed $100 million. You need, you're going to have to spend 4 or $5 million in you know, legal fees, et cetera, just to get this thing up and running. You're going to have to raise $50 million on day one to make it profitable. And we happened to come across an article uh, in Business Week about a young, uh, not a young man, but a, a gentleman that was running a mutual fund out of his living room in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, called the Valley Forge Fund. And we called him up and we said, you know, we'd like to come down and talk to you. And he said, sure, give me a couple hundred dollars for my time and I'll give you an education. So we jumped in a car. We drove down to Pennsylvania. He taught us some things. We left his house. We said, okay, most of what he's doing, we could automate and make it more efficient than what he's doing. And he also told us that really all you needed was $100,000 in seed money. And we could, I got that from a sister of mine and she put it in the fund and we basically started the first internet mutual fund. And we were in the right place at the right time. Um, but the, the, the point being is that you really just need to, don't let people tell you no. There's avenues around that and you should act on it if you think you have a good, good opportunity. 
And yes, we those of us listening here that have seen Bitcoin as a good opportunity <laughs> are hopefully acting, and we will get to that. I want to first of all, I want to take you back to when you were ten or eleven years old and buying stocks, because that does not look like anything right now, where a millennial can pick up like a cash app or any any kind of app on their phone and start buying stocks. What was it like for you guys when you're trying to buy stocks back in those days? So, so you know, you would set up a brokerage account and my, or my mother would put it in her name and I would give her the money that I had. Um, and then I was really, you know, it was pretty basic stuff. I liked McDonald's, so I would buy McDonald's stock. And, I, okay, I could see more people eating more hamburgers and it wasn't too complex <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and uh, that, was, that was essentially it. It was a, just kind of my interest in that and looking at the financial sheets. And when you used to go in there and look at the high, low and see how the stock did over, the, that was something that I started checking at a pretty early age. I won't say I was so religious about it. And I kind of let that fall off with the passage of time. And it wasn't until I really had that professor in college that I really got back into it more seriously and thought about it as a profession. So what's what's your take now on like this this Robinhood app, for example, that is just exploding uh, amongst younger people, younger generation? That uh, you know, there's some obviously people making some nice money, but then again, there are some horror stories of of kids just bankrupting themselves. Do you, what? Yeah, so it's 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 if you do your due diligence and you and you understand what you're doing. If you're going in there blindly and thinking you're going to be able to buy X Y Z company and think you're going to make a lot of money because somebody told you about that, that's not the way the world works, or at least long term. Um, so I would counsel people to stay away from that. I think a lot of what they teach at university um, is something that you should learn to pass a test, perhaps, but then immediately forget. And I think a lot of what's going on, particularly in the um, ETF industry and in the indexation process is just sheer craziness. And, you know, you're buying baskets of goods. And, and when you when you go out and put money into this spider S&P 500, you know, it might make perfectly good sense to buy it at 10 times earnings. And maybe it makes good sense to buy it at 15 times earnings. But if you're buying it at 25, 30 times earnings, your chances of making a reasonable rate of return looking out over a decade is pretty low. And I think that's really what's going on and what has driven the market in earnest for the last decade. And I think we're at a point where that's going to come to an end. I think people are going to be frustrated with the lack of returns that they're likely to get in the large cap names that most people are familiar with. And I think they're going to look for an alternative to that. And conversely, there's, there's other opportunities out there that people have just really forgotten about. And I'll just give you one example. The energy sector, when I first got into the business, was approximately 30% of the S&P 500. Today, it's less than 2%. So, you know, we spent the last 160 years building a global infrastructure on the back of hydrocarbons, and people somehow think we're going to get away from those in the next two years, next three years. And they're treating them like they're going out of business, and they're not going out of business. And they're trading at a deep, deep discount to their intrinsic value. And you'll make a lot of money if you have some patience on that. It won't, it'll be, you know, there'll be some volatility with it, but you're buying something at really truly below its intrinsic value that has, that still has very good earnings prospects looking out into the future. Yeah, that's uh, and what's really really interesting now is the infrastructure that's being built around that that sector with regards to mining. 
And you know, if we if we look at a few companies that are going out and taking the wasted flare gla- uh, flared gas, excuse me, from from oil fields, and then using that energy to to run miners, that's amazing. Uh, and I know you guys, you, you've looked at this very very closely, and you have an investment, I believe, uh, a fund. It, well. You go for it. You tell us what you're doing there. Sure. sure. So we, we got into Bitcoin back in the latter part of 2015, and we bought it uh, professionally and we bought it personally, and we can get into that a little bit deeper. But as we mm-hmm. kind of developed, we came to an understanding that the mining industry would help solve a problem for a lot of people. Globally, we, there's something like $17 trillion uh, worth of debt that's underwater, you know, not underwater, but basically negative yields. And obviously, the, even if it's positive yields with inflation adjusted in real terms, it's negative in, in even tens of trillions more beyond that. So people are struggling to replace their fixed income. And the mining operation is a potential source of, of, of income for people. So if you can mine a Bitcoin today at, let's say, 6000 and let's say over the course of a year, it's going to take you, you know, that to, to mine that at 6000 and today the price is 7500 and you sell it at that, that's an incredible rate of return that would provide a lot of income for somebody. So we started these, these mining companies as a way for people to either, one, get exposure to Bitcoin if they wanted to hang on to it, or two, we would turn around and sell the Bitcoin on their behalf and distribute out the cash to them. Um, so the mining industry, in our opinion, is going to be one of the largest in the world in the, in the future. And there's a lot of complexities to it, though. Um, and I give great credit to a number of my colleagues that didn't rush out and just buy machines at the all-time high back in 2017 and then watch them collapse in price and the technology improved dramatically. Um, they were very conservative about scaling in and learning about the industry. And we had the opportunity because of the mismanagement of others to basically go in and buy an operation down in North Carolina where we basically own the factory and we have our hosting our miners as well as other people's miners uh, and making money on doing that. And that business, uh, we think, is going to grow exponentially, looking out into the you know many decades, actually. Wow, that is that is not the kind of play you expect from a wealth management company to go and start one of these like mining pools, essentially. So, so you know, really, what it is is that we don't we consider ourselves more to be educators and you know students ourselves and. There's a problem. There's a problem with people basically being debased out of their wealth from low interest rates and inflation. And there's a problem with people basically not having enough income to live based on how their current portfolios are, are structured. So, you know, to great credit of my colleague, Murray Stahl, he said, here's an opportunity where we could create this as an income product. And it truly diversifies people away from bonds and traditional fixed income. And it's uh, just a great opportunity. And we're very early on this. And why don't we do it? And, you know, we're all of the mind. We don't lack imagination. So we said, absolutely, we should be doing this. And that's how we got, you know, again, another example of (laughs) if it makes sense, just try it. And we did it on a small scale. And we were prudent about it. And we didn't get hurt in the same way as many of our competitors that started in 2017. As a result of that, we were able to consolidate. And now, we're going into the next phase of that where we actually think that we can do um, create machines where we can probably get a payback on those machines within two months' time. And anything above that would actually be gravy. 
Um, so we're not quite there yet. I would say I'll be, be able to give a more definitive answer in another few months. But if that's true, the world is going to be the path to our door. And we're going to have no shortage of people trying to give us capital as a result of that. Um, so that's a big opportunity that's just on the horizon for us. It may not work out, but so far it's looking pretty good. Uh, do you have any insights as to because there's this big debate um, always within the space that you know mining got uh, too centralized in the past in in one specific company uh, excuse me company well might as well call it a company <laughs> China country uh, is that something that you saw happening or have seen unraveling well, what's your take on that yeah I, that I think landscape? I think it's it was overblown as a threat. Um, because even though the mining pools may have been based in China, the ownership of those pools were around the world. So we had machines over there, and we were part of mining pools initially, et cetera. So we didn't view that as Chinese mining pools. We viewed that as our mining pools. And so unless they stole it from us, uh, then we weren't that concerned about that. So you know, as, as, the, as other parts of the world have become more aware of Bitcoin and wherever you can get low cost of electricity, et cetera, that's where pools have moved to. So that's even become even less of a concern, but that was never a big concern of ours. And what is the, the price of electricity right now in comparison US to China? So, so it ranges uh, fairly dramatically. And uh, that's one of the things that I think we do very well. So there's something called peak demand and non-peak peak demand. So if you're running it from three in the afternoon to six at night, you might be paying 16, 17 cents a kilowatt. If you're running it at two o'clock in the morning, you might be paying two or three cents a kilowatt. Um, and if you're up near some hydro plant, et cetera, it might be even less than that. So it really varies to a large degree, even at a very high cost facility. If you're running your machines off hour, you might actually get a very good deal because they have the capacity and they're not selling it typically and they're happy to sell it at a very reduced price. Now, if you don't know that, if you didn't have that background, you might be running your machines 24 hours a day and your average cost might be 12, 13 cents a kilowatt and you're a high cost provider of that service or it's costing you more to mine a Bitcoin than it should. So there's a lot of nuances to the mining business that a lot of people don't understand and don't have the kind of expertise. And to again, to our credit, I think we started off slowly. I think we had a pretty good understanding of the utility industry. Um, I served on, a, uh, on the sub-investment group, um, research group at Bankers Trust Company for the utility industry. My colleague, Murray Stahl, is, is an expert in, in utility stocks and, and how they work. Um, and he's done a great job uh, really navigating the, the waters. And again, I, I said, as I mentioned to you, I think within two to three months' time, we have an opportunity to build machines, produce Bitcoins, and get a payback in as short as two to three months. So that, that's just going to be an extraordinary rate of return. And if you think the price is going to go higher, it's just, it would just off the chart type return. That is, yeah, that is very exciting. That is, and I think uh, before when we were discussing this, uh, I've not done too much of a deep dive on, on the mining side of things myself, but it just fascinates me. I've got a few more questions around this before we move on. Uh, there's, yeah, I think we've talked about before, there's, there's a lot of different regulations within the states, right? They, they completely different in different jurisdictions. And there's opportunities going to open up in some states to, to build more facilities because they have uh, cheaper power and uh, more forgiving regulations. Is that right? Yeah. So 
I wouldn't say so much that you're concerned about the regulations of, I, you know, if you're talking about a state like Wyoming, where they're embracing Bitcoin and trying to bring businesses out there and, and favorable tax treatment, that's one thing. In terms of operating a mining facility, you just really want to go wherever there's a low cost of power. So it could be a heavily taxed state, but if the mining operation can produce electricity at a very low cost, that may be an area that you should be looking at. So, you know, if you're up on a some river up in, you know, in the, on the Sarah Lawrence, upstate New York, you might be able to get, you know, very cheap power. And maybe that's where you should be looking or North Carolina. It really varies. There's no, there's no state that I would automatically rule out. Um, if I was starting a crypto business and I wanted a favorable environment, I would probably move that business to Wyoming um, for tax purposes and just general ease of use and, you know, acceptance of, of Bitcoin as a, as a, as an industry. But in terms of power, I, I think you can look really anywhere in the world. Yeah, truly very interesting. And one last question about mining. How do you see a derivatives market being, well, progressing all based around the, the miners' need to, to hedge, hedge exposure, so, either to uh, the electricity cost or to, you know, to, in the options market for Bitcoin? Are you guys looking forward to that? Not so much. Um, for us, you know, this is an interesting thing. You know, market makers, I don't know how familiar you are with the New York Stock Exchange, where there used to be based on a market maker who would make a market in the stock. And that market maker would see both sides, both the buys and the sells. And they were able to trade on that information that they had, really inside information. The Bitcoin market ecosystem really allows you to be the market maker. And I was reading just before I got on with you that the miners right now are selling roughly 11 coins an hour in order to pay for their operations. Yet the demand is something like 235. And they're buying, so the people that are buying that, be Grayscale or people that are getting on PayPal, et cetera, and PayPal fulfilling that, are buying that off of exchanges. So you can see that the demand is overwhelming the supply certainly as it regards to the miners. They, they just can't supply enough coins for basically the number of people that want to buy that. And if the coins get into strong hands and people really view this as a savings account, that scarcity is going to increase with time. And that's what I'm banking on. And, and I, I think you have a pretty good insight into that. And people do analytical work on this on a daily basis, and they tell you what, what the situation is. And that demand keeps growing, and the supply keeps shrinking of the available coins and basic economics higher price and that's what you're seeing more recently so i tell our staff almost every monday when i speak to them this is a once in a life opportunity so if i knew nothing about bitcoin and somebody told me about it today or yesterday i would immediately start looking into it and buying it and the you can see that demand is coming and the supply is and it, as, as it gets into stronger and stronger hands prices are set at the margin and, you know, not everyone is going to be take advantage of this because if nobody wants to sell and you want to price some loose, suddenly this the price could go from 17.5 to 36.3 very quickly. Um, and I, I expect that to happen at some point in the future, maybe tonight even. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time. But the the openness of the blockchain and the orders that you see allows you to be effectively the market maker. 
And I pay attention to that on a regular basis. And nothing, nothing that I see so far makes me unoptimistic about where the price of Bitcoin may go. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I've been accused of being a big bull myself in the past, but uh, talking to people like yourself just gets me even more bullish. And yeah, we, here we are at time of recording. This is the day that we've pumped all the way, well, very, very close to 18,000. Uh, so, so let me where, can I just make one point and why I, I really would like to give a shout out to Michael Saylor. Don't know him as a person. Seems like it seems like a nice guy, a very bright guy. But the second thing that I would say, you know, I mentioned about just doing it. If you think you have a good idea, just act on it. Don't let people tell you no. But one of the things that I truly admire about him is that he's not afraid to be embarrassed. Right? He made a very big bet. And I can't tell you in the institutional world that he operates in. Making that type of investment requires a lot of fortitude, and he could be known as that guy if it ever went south. That that guy that got it wrong, but that's okay. You know, you can be wrong in life, and don't be. You know, if you see something, don't be afraid to say it. And and I got into it very quickly. Literally within ninety seconds, I knew I was going to be involved in Bitcoin because I could I could control my risk by the sizing of it. I didn't have to bet all my clients' wealth on it or my own wealth on that. And I wasn't afraid to say, yeah, I may be wrong about this, but it seems like if this is true, if this technology truly works and this blockchain is not corrupted and it can't be hacked into, there's no reason to believe that a single coin won't go to some high, high level. And that was really the basis. Just like just on hearing it literally within the first 90 seconds, I said I had an understanding. I had an understanding from starting the Internet Fund and, and the mania that could get associated with that. I don't think this that's this at all. But... Don't be embarrassed by that. So we would tell our clients, okay, we lost you 1% in Bitcoin because we thought it was a good opportunity, but it didn't work out the way we, we had hoped. Um, but I think there's a lot of institutional type investors that are, that are afraid to do that. So for Michael Saylor to take the actions that he did is really very commendable. And I'm not and trying to get invited to his party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, you know, if you'd listen to John Vallis, uh, you know, you, you heard you heard Peter here giving uh, giving Michael some some big ups. But one 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 question uh, I did want to ask, and now it's gone. Ah, hang on a second. Yes. So when when you see a, a play like that as a wealth manager, and when you like the, the conventional wisdom that is forced down our necks by the flapping heads or your local uh, financial advisor. Diversification, diversification, diversification. Have a little bit in this, a little bit in this, a little bit in this. But when you see something like this, I mean, you said once in a lifetime, how do you think about it and how would you advise people about it if they've come to the same realization as you? So initially, um, it was really, I saw the asymmetric possibilities of Bitcoin very quickly. And it was based on really supply and demand and the greed of Wall Street. I said, okay, the, the pricing of indexation is collapsing. What are they going to look to to basically make money on in the future? And I said, okay, they're going to get behind crypto assets in the future because I think that's going to be a, a revenue source for them. And they're not going to turn that down. And then a limited supply, demand growing, supply finite, higher price. So 
that asymmetric nature, I said, okay, I can make it a very small position at the time. You know, it was $450, $500 at the time we were buying it. That 1% position, if it grew to really a fraction of what I thought it ultimately could grow to, would actually have a very large impact on the portfolios that we were managing. I subsequently, listening to Michael, um, listened to your podcast, uh, came across a video more recently of Steve Jobs, a lost interview from 1990. And he went through the growth of the personal computer and the two things that fueled that initially. One was the spreadsheet, and then secondarily was the um, word processing. And then he's talking in 1990, he's talking about a network system. And if I had been there listening to him at the time, even though I benefited tremendously from the de uh, the development of the internet, I would have said, okay, I can basically organize communities that can be, can be completely remote. I mean, just look what we're doing right here, right? So I would have been more attentive to that. And then putting that together, when you realize that Bitcoin is the operating system for the monetary network, and all of the applications that are being built on that, and people right now rushing to do that, it leads you to believe that a single token is going to be worth some extraordinary amount of money in the future. And that world seems to me like it's coming, and it's coming very fast. So that's why I said if I, if I heard that today, just in my limited supply-demand initial take on it and understanding of it, but now understanding truly that it, it really is the backbone and it's, it's dominance in terms of hashing power and security, it's hard to see how Bitcoin is not going to be wildly successful and the price of a single Bitcoin would go to a very, very high number. So me personally, I've actually taken more money and put it into Bitcoin. And you know, anyone I tell today, this is the conversation that I have is whatever amount of money that you can lose comfortably... And the next time you see me that you won't be upset if it went to zero, that's the amount that you should have immediately. And then you should start doing homework on your own and come to your own conclusion. So that, that's essentially what I, I literally tell anyone I meet. And as my children tell me, talking about Bitcoin does not give you a personality. Uh, but it is one of my <laughs> dominant conversations. <laughs> I was told the exact same thing at dinner the other night. <laughs> I will use the exact words that Caitlin that Caitlin used uh, because she's the well she's the sassiest because she's the oldest. Like daddy, like one dinner, one family dinner where you don't bring up Bitcoin, please, just one. That's all we want. And I'm like, okay. What else do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> And that lasted for about a minute before you broke into Bitcoin story? A minute. <laughs> One minute. <laughs> I think the next thing I said, what well, she said, oh, I'm, I'm going to go see my friends tomorrow and uh, we're going to do this. And oh, we haven't caught up in a while. I'm like, oh, yeah? Just say the word Bitcoin. Just say the word. <laughs> just say just, just the word so it's there in their minds. They might thank you in 10 years. Um, but uh, she, I just get the, I, yeah, I get the eye rolls. I know what you're talking about. So my, my children are a bit older, and um, they, they know they have exposure to Bitcoin. And my son, I told him, I said, if you want to become a millionaire on your own, I told him, you know, going a while back, you should buy a Bitcoin. And he did. And so, you know, we'll see how he does with that. So, so far, he's pretty happy. Oh, that is that is awesome. Yeah, it's it makes me so bullish for that generation. It really does. Those um, those that are coming behind us, 
once we get all of this madness shaken out. Do you ever yeah. think about that? I, I, I do. You I mean, there's do, a lot obviously. of things that are going on that, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of chaos in the world, but there's a lot of good that's going on underneath it. Um, and Bitcoin being one of them and, and sovereignty of the individual and, you know, the, the breaking away of the controlled narrative of the media companies is another example. Um, you know, you've seen it riffle, rifle through politics on a global basis. Um, so there's, there's going to be dislocations and disruptions and, and riots and things like that. But I think ultimately society is going to come out better as a result of it. How many guys do you, when you do the Monday morning uh, meeting, how many guys uh, uh, are working for you over at Horizon? So uh, we have about 80 employees. Um, and then we have, a, we have a Monday morning, quote, it's kind of a free-for-all marketing type thing. But, uh, you know, right. Uh, and then later in the day, we have a, an investment committee meeting that's uh, chaired by my colleague, Murray Stahl. Um, so I would say on probably about half the company is on uh, one of those calls. So, we, you know, and it could be 100 percent. We want everyone to listen in. So, you know, one of the things that I, that I hope to do, anyone that comes into contact with me, either a client or an employee, has a rewarding experience, a personal experience, as well as a financial, a rewarding financial experience. And I've been, you know extolling the opportunity that this represents for them. Uh, I hope they're all, you know, able to say, you know, it was great working here, but I now have so much money, I don't need to work here if, they, if that's what they choose <laughs> to do. That was kind of where I was leading with that question. You, you might be doing yourself out, you know, you might find an empty office in six months' time. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're on, we've been on the wrong end for a decade of where the investment world has gone in terms of we're an active value-oriented managers, and that's really been, it's been our winter for really almost 10 years. But we're on the verge of our summertime again. And the craziness that's gone on in, with ETFs and indexation is going to hit a wall. I think we're really at that already. And people are going to look for basically something different, and we offer that. And I, so I see, you know, people are worried about, oh, your portfolios are down this year because you're investing. You know, our biggest investment is energy or something like that. They're trading away tremendous opportunity, including Bitcoin that's tucked away in, in all our funds. And we're giving them back dollars that I don't want, and they're giving us back maybe higher concentration and all the things that I do want. So anybody that has the fortitude to stay with us will be richly rewarded, in my opinion. Um, and I think we're there now. And we're starting to see that over the last month, really. It's, it's in real time. Yeah, that's that's right. That's a brilliant segue to where I want to go next. But before I do, we were talking about uh, buyers uh, like yourselves, like institutions. When you guys realize this opportunity, you have a lot of clout, let's say. Now, the word is getting out there. We still have, you know, the Paul Tudor Jones, uh, Michael Saylor, people like that making, uh, making big moves and big waves. But we still have people like uh, Ray Dalio and, and Warren Buffett that are just, they, it seems like they don't, I don't know. Do, do you have, do, do you have a, a what, what's your feel? What, why why so, aren't so, they? So Ray Dalio reversed himself today. I don't know if you saw that. Maybe you didn't have an opportunity. Uh, but he said, I might have made a mistake on Bitcoin. Uh, so let's give him a pass at least. And Warren <laughs> Buffett had, you know, listen, I, I completely respect what he's done. Um, and he talks, and, and I think rightfully so, stick to your core competency. And his core competency is not technology, right? So he's very good friends with Bill Gates. And Bill Gates certainly could have told him about 
the internet and you know the social network and got him in all those stocks if he listened to him and he chose not to do it and that's okay there's other ways to make money um i don't think he fully understands what this is um and he's going to be just fine without it uh but you know he mm-hmm. sold off i read this morning he sold off his banks right so that's mm-hmm. the first that's a little crack in the armor right there and 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 him moving away he also made an investment going back a number of months in japanese trading companies that tr- trade in commodities i think he thinks mm-hmm. inflation is coming because of the craziness of the money printing that's going on around the world so maybe the next step is he dabbled in this a little bit or the people that are right below him get him exposed to that but he listen he's he's had an amazing career but you know one one of the things that i learned early on is that Warren Buffett is a very good stock picker. I'm not going to tell you he's a great stock picker, and I and I admire him, and I and Charlie Munger I think is a brilliant person. But Warren Buffett figured out very early on in his career how to get his hands on other people's money and how to get paid on that money. And if you think about the whole concept of float in the insurance business, he has access to tens of billions of dollars, and he gets to get a return on that prior to making it pay out any claims. So if you have, you know, 40, 50, 60 billion dollars that you get paid on and that money is yours, but it's really your client's money, but you're getting paid on it, you're going to become very wealthy. Um, so he's, he's going to do fine and he's going to hedge himself in other ways. That, uh, and I think he's doing that right now. It just may not be through Bitcoin. And this brings us to once, once people like Ray uh, does start coming in and other big investment houses and Preston talks about this all the time, escape velocity. How, how <laughs> I don't think people really can grasp how quickly this thing could go. And, you know, once liquidity dries up, you know, I, I've seen it in my past career. Things can go so rapid that it's just unbelievable. What are your thoughts about that? I, I 110% agree with that. Um, it, you know, it, once, once the coins get into very strong hands and they realize what it is, and Michael talks about you know, saving energy, looking out for the next 50, 100 years and putting your savings into this, right? There's only a very finite amount of coins. There's only going to ever be 21 million, and we all know it's going to be something less than that because people have lost coins. And those coins can get dried up and, and, and held by very strong hands that have no interest in necessarily selling them anytime soon. And things are priced at the margin. So every day, Apple trades in the stock market, but it doesn't trade because all of the shareholders are trading. A, a very small fraction of the shares are traded. And if nobody wants to sell and a lot of people want to buy, you're going to have to bid up a lot. And that can happen very quickly. That's why I don't think the vast majority of people are not going to benefit from the appreciation of Bitcoin. Um, because it's going to be in a very small number of hands relative to the global population. And people are not going to sell it. And then if you wanted one, you're going to have to pay up at a very high price. And once it gets to some parity with normal stores of value out there, Bitcoin is not going to have this explosive appreciation beyond that point. So it's going to appreciate relative to how other commodities and other currencies debase themselves on an annual basis. But that, that yeah, number could be just absolute. So, you know, if you ask me and I say it, I said it on our Monday call, people, we're going to wake up one day, you're going to see a gap up of 15,000, 20,000. I, I don't doubt mm-hmm. that that's, that's definitely a real possibility. And I think it's likely, actually. I, I fully expect that too. 
and it, it, imagine the difference that's going to make to some people's lives. Now, a lot of us listening uh, and doing these podcasts, we you know we consider ourselves plebs, and we we're just out there stacking our sats whenever we can. When when big institutions come in, and I mean we we suffer FOMO. We suffer FOMO a hundred dollar level. Ray Dalio might suffer FOMO at a ten billion dollar level. And could you give us insights as to like FOMO is a real thing? It's not just us plebs on the on the street talking about it. What what's FOMO like at the institutional level? Oh, you you well, you saw it through the internet craze, and it's it's incredible. You know, people you suddenly you're going to hear about it as you're driving in an Uber, or you know, everyone's going to be talking about it. We're not nearly at that that level right now. You know, I I sit on a, a small charity in my town. And I bought Bitcoin for the charity. Um, <clears throat> I was treasurer, and I used the charity's money, and it was $900 at the time. And I told them about it. I thought I didn't need approval, so I just did it. You know, okay, no big deal. They treated me like I had just murdered someone. Like, are you, <laughs> are you involved with drug dealing or something? <laughs> and they, they, I said, okay, I'm going to give you back the $900, and I will buy it for the charity with my own money. And these are very highly educated people, and it's not—it's just not what they do. They're, you know, they're going to work, and they're attorneys, and they're doctors, etc. It's just not what they're focused on right now. And people don't think about inflation as a tax, and what the money printing can do to their wealth. And but if you're a professional investor, you better be thinking about that in a big way. And when and and as Michael Saylor says, as you go down the list, I think he's wrong about their opportunity in equities. I think certain parts of the equity market are very attractive still, and particularly uh, the energy sector. But you start going down the list, it's probably one of the best opportunities around available to investors. And I think a lot of people are going to wake up to that reality. And when they wake up to that reality, it may be too late. I don't know how many companies could go out right now and buy forty thousand coins without making the market significantly higher, uh, the price significantly higher. So maybe another couple of companies, but beyond that, they're going to push it up to some very high level. Yeah. And this has sparked a conversation uh, around Bitcoin Twitter of, are we ever going to see another bear market? Because once this goes and it goes and it's going to be held up because there's always going to be institutions looking to buy it. Now, I have a theory, which I'd love to run past you, that when, when these guys are buying these, these um, institutions, they're buying it on behalf of clients. And they're always in touch with their clients, and their clients aren't going to understand it as well as... You, you probably have many clients that don't understand Bitcoin as well as you do. Uh, like the charity is a perfect example. How, how likely are we going to see a forced sellout? When, when we get to a certain point, People are just going to want, they're still thinking in fiat terms, especially the, not just the investors themselves, but especially the the uh, customers that they're investing on behalf of. So, yeah, I, I think you're going to still see some, some volatility on this. Um, uh, I, think, I think the volatility will lessen with the passage of time. But, you know, as Michael kind of pointed out, I give you fire and you want to trade it. I think there's a mentality. He can he can say that all he wants, but people can't shake themselves of that. You know, they're they that's who they are as people, and it takes a lot of fortitude to be patient and you know think that you're right and live through that. You know, I we watched it go to twenty thousand, back down to three thousand, change, and 
didn't bother me in the least, to be honest with you, because I said, okay, that wasn't why I got into it. And I still think it's got orders of magnitude more to go before this thing really plays out. Um, but other people were crying. Like, I, I said, why didn't you sell that 20000 People on the charity asked me. I said, well, if, if I had a crystal ball, maybe I would have, but I doubt it. I said, that's not why I got into it. I, I just looked, I waved them off. I said, listen, when you know something about this, then we'll come back and we'll have a conversation. But, but so I, I think there's going to be volatility. You know, you saw, you, you know, it could, we could be done with this call. It could be down, back down to 15000 14000 It could be 22000 Nobody, I, I, nobody has any great insight into that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, I want to ask about boardrooms. People sitting out there, boardrooms all over the world are probably scratching their heads right now, trying to get down the rabbit hole. It's very difficult to do that in uh, a short period of time. Michael did it really, really well, but uh, in, in the circumstances he found himself, he had the majority of the voting rights. If there's a guy out there now thinking, I need exposure to Bitcoin, I don't want to go out and self-custody. I can't just go and do that because there's a lot of rules these guys have to go. If, you, if you're a CIO or CFO or CEO, you can't just go do that and put it on a hard wallet and turn up in a boardroom and say, it's okay, guys, I got the, I got the treasury here. Uh, it seems to me that you guys are offering a great option for a company to come in and one, get exposure to, to Bitcoin if you guys are just going to buy it for them on their behalf and, and custody through whatever methods you use. Two, get involved with and exposed to mining. Uh, three, getting exposed to uh, GBTC if, if you use that vehicle. And then four, I want to go through this case, seeing as we've been talking about Michael Saylor, uh, MicroStrategy. Um, how do you lay out the case to like companies that might be looking for exposure to Bitcoin but can't just go out and buy it. And you guys being able to diversify them across the same asset, if that makes sense. So so the, I can't say that I have, a, we, we deal mostly with high net worth individuals and some institutions. Um, and, and the institutions that I have, I, I tell them point blank, you know, probably the first sentence other than hello, is that I think that you're abdicating your responsibility if you don't have some exposure to this. Um, immediately. Um, and then, you know, they, t we take it from there. Um, and, and it, whether, you know, they want to come through our funds that we have various limited partnerships that we have, we have mutual fund exposure that has GBTC. Um, we have, um, limited partnerships that ha have bought Bitcoin directly as well as, uh, GBTC at net asset value. And then we have the mining operation. My guess is that Probably the mining operation is going to be the biggest growth area for us um, because it's probably the hardest thing to do. And it's a way of sourcing Bitcoin well below mark, present market value. And um, so I, I think that's going to be I, th I think a, a lot of people can start to replicate what we've done professionally um, through GBTC or buying the coins themselves. And I think there's going to be institutional custody that's going to make that possible. So. I would say that the, probably the biggest growth area is going to be for us the mining operations. And, and in terms of yeah. in terms of microstrategy, that's another way to get around. You know, a lot of if you're working at Merrill Lynch or UBS, et cetera, a lot of these organizations don't allow you to buy GBTC. So now, if I'm a if I'm a wealth manager over there, I would say, okay, I know this company MicroStrategy owns Bitcoin and 
I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not in love with the underlying business, but that 38,250 coins is going to be worth sub substantially more. Let me get my exposure that way. And the compliance people are not going to know that. So I, even within my own organization, like the SEC is aware that we own this in our mutual funds. And they're very concerned about that. And they're concerned because if something goes wrong, they have only downside, right? And if it goes up, they have no upside with that. So when I speak about things to our shareholders, the legal staff at my own company edits out the conversation about Bitcoin. And I said, don't you think the shareholders would really want to know what I have to say about this? That this is really what I'm thinking? And they say, well, the SEC doesn't really want us going on public record to retail investors. Um, so let's let's take that out of the, the transcript. So, you know, even within an organization that fully embraces it, we have constraints. So the things that Michael talked about, the institutional imperatives and the hurdles that you have to get over are fairly large. Um, but there's enough organizations out there that the dominant shareholder has the voting control and they can get this thing through pretty quickly. And I think you're going to see that's where the, the, the first inroads are going to be made. And it's probably going on as we speak. And you're going to see it in various countries. Are going to, the treasuries at certain companies countries are going to basically start uh, taking this. I, you know, obviously, Iran, Iran has done it, um, but maybe more mainstream, more benign uh, countries will start doing it as well. I went down to Bermuda. I, I mentioned this on another podcast, and I spoke with the premier of Bermuda uh, several years ago, and I told him, can you find like $2 million to buy some Bitcoin? And I said, this could alleviate all your debt issues in a few years, and you would be a hero. And he looked at me like I was crazy, and he said they would shoot me. So, but now Bermuda actually is, is actually embracing it. And they're, they're, they're one of the countries that basically is in the lead. Um, and they're going to allow a ETF to be listed there probably within the end of this month, maybe, maybe let's say at latest the end of December. And that's going to have reciprocity. You're likely to be able to buy that on the New York Stock Exchange sometime in the not too distant future. So there's a backdoor ETF that's likely to be coming. And that, that will give the brokers and, and other institutions, the availability of the Bitcoin that they don't have presently. That's crazy. I had no idea that was happening. That's, imagine, imagine if they'd taken your advice. You'd probably have the key to Bermuda right now. <laughs> <laughs> they might have let me uh, in without taking Corona test. Uh, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You mentioned regulations there, and this is something that comes up and up and again, uh, especially in New York, because you guys have a, a special set of uh, regulations um, around Bitcoin. What are the challenges or worries that you think you're going to face with the regulatory bodies going going forward? If you play this thing out one to two years, um, how do you see this this panning out? Yeah, it's it's... If, if I were a regulator, it's the same concern they, that they have and they've expressed to us. It's really custody of the, of the, of the asset, right? You know, we, we own these or do we own these on a ledger and where are they kept and who has access to them and can they be absconded with, et cetera. So, you know, as insti institutional grade custody comes to play and, and, and is being offered, that concern is going to go away and it's going to pave the way for an acceptance as an asset class to be held, um, in, in a way that makes people safe. And so mainstream financial networks is going to be involved with Bitcoin and, and crypto assets in the future. There's no getting around that uh, if you want it to become more widespread. And, but, and, that, and that's here. A lot of it's even here already. Yeah. 
And do you have any insights at all as to what might happen to the seized Bitcoin that was just recently uh, taken from um, the, the the wallet that, of the Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht? Do you uh, have any? Yeah, I mean, at some point, they're going to auction it off. If they were smart, they would right. keep it. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, you know, keep it for a number of years and then auction it off. Um, I, I don't I don't have any better insight than probably you have. Yeah, that's just such a... That that's a really interesting story at the moment. How many coins was it? It's a crazy amount. It's a it's a big number, billion or something. Sixty like odd thousand. Yeah, I think it's a big number. Yeah, it's in, wow. Who have you been? I mean, you you said at the beginning that uh, a lot of your day is spent reading, researching. And I think it'd be remiss of me if uh, if I didn't ask you who's been influencing your thoughts around Bitcoin and giving uh, some some big ups to to whoever's been doing that work. So, um, first and foremost, my colleague Murray Stahl. Um, he has a has mm-hmm. a degree in in mathematics, a degree in history, um, a photographic memory, um, and he has a hobby in cryptography. And he read the paper back in late 2015, and then he walked down to my office and he explained it to me. And again, I, I said within a minute and a half of him explaining, I said, okay, I know enough through supply, demand, through greed, et cetera. And if you tell me the technology, you think the technology is good enough that the blockchain is never going to be hacked, then this is going to be worth an absolute fortune at some point in the future. And I said, and w- literally within a minute and a half, I said, I want in. But th- what was impressive about him was that he read the paper directly and walked out of his office and said, we, we need to be interested in this. So one of the things, I, I, another reason to admire Michael Saylor, and who's definitely had a little bit of an influence on what I've been thinking lately, is that he gives credit to the people that have come before him. And he's right. You know, he, they, they, a lot of people had done a lot of work, so he had a lot of resources to go to. Um, and we didn't really my colleague Murray didn't have those resources or didn't avail himself of those resources that were available at that time. So I would say Michael and Murray are two, two of the biggest, uh, listening to your podcast and the people that you have on as guests. Um, you know, certainly just the, just the unfolding of events that I've witnessed myself and seeing that the system of the capitalist system, as I understood it, um, when I first got into the business is broken. Um, I came to that conclusion myself that this is, uh, you know, the answer to every problem seems to be print more money and bail out people closest to the spigot. And there's creating a lot of inequality that I think is really unhealthy for society. And I think you need a, a, a vehicle off of that uh, system. Um, so just just the actions of our governments around the governments around the world has basically helped induce me to basically embrace it more. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the names that you, that you talk, John Vallis, I listened to some of his podcasts, Pomp. Um, but I would say in some of those cases, I probably was in at the same time or before them. So I would, I would credit at least Murray with by far the most influence. Yeah, it's so different now with the, um, it's, it's so different with the amount of information out there that you'd have been struggling to find something back in those days. Yeah, absolutely. And and so unless you really had the the computer science background, the mathematical background to to fully embrace it. And obviously I went back and I read the correspondence between Hal Finney and Satoshi um, 
and even Hal Finney very early on talking about, you know, as a store of value and the, the, the lack of the need for no arbitrage between stores of value. And he was putting it, you know, just in his imagination, which I fully embraced almost immediately when I read that. He was saying that, uh, that Bitcoin's market capitalization could be somewhere between 100 trillion and 300 trillion. And I think that's fully possible. Um, so that's how much upside there is. So, so you, we're talking right now, it's still a very small asset class. It's not even an asset class. I don't think it truly the definition of an asset class truly is probably well in excess of a trillion dollars. It's probably closer to two trillion dollars. So Bitcoin is not going to be regarded as an asset class until it gets to that type of market capitalization. Um, and that's going to and that's going to be still in the very early stages. And that's obviously a meaningful return from these levels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, meaningful is an adjective. Yeah, for sure. What's um have you felt any kind of personal changes within yourself since you've been interacting with Bitcoin and, and advising people about it? Other than driving your daughters crazy, uh, like, like personally, you know. Um, so I know one of the questions that you ask at the end, and maybe I'll preempt you on this: is that <laughs> who would you like to uh, orange pill? Yes, and um, I really already have been doing that, and what I think I get the greatest pleasure from exposing it to somebody who I know is under a lot of stress thinking about their financial future. And it happens to be, in some cases, single women, women that are divorced, et cetera. And either I bought them some personally or I told them to buy some and they bought it and I said, do not sell this under any circumstance. And uh, so far it's working out and it looks like it's going in the right direction. So that, that, those, those are the most gratifying to me. Um, you know, and the big issues of talking about like, you know, a restructuring of society, I would say that's probably only really entered my thoughts in the last six months to a year. Um, and then you're starting to see more of how this really could ripple through and, and make the world a better place. Um, so but that wasn't my initial take on it. My initial take was simply a supply demand and knowing that Wall Street likes fees, that they would be coming towards this eventually um, and just having the patience to do that. And now it's, it's a much broader, and, and listening to your podcast and other podcasts, I, I've gotten a much better appreciation for that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I never never thought it would happen to me, but it, it, it creeps up on you for sure. And, you know, you, you get in for it, number go up, this is all great, uh, you know, beating your chest, whatever else, making money for other people. In, in, in your case, for example, um, but then, yeah, it's something else. It's a weird, it's a weird switch, and I, I, I can't. I know John Vales talks about this a lot on his podcast, and it's something I'm really interested in as well. So, so, so money again. Money doesn't really interest me in that. Uh, you know, my daughter tells me, you know, we live. She uses the word "we." We live well below our means, and I said, "No, I live below my means. You live well above your means." And um, <laughs> so, it, it doesn't. Uh, from that standpoint, you know, it doesn't really interest me that much. Um, and one of the th one of the things I don't like about the Bitcoin community, if I'm allowed to say something like this, is sure. that the the unnatural attention on the daily price. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the people are literally tweeting out every three minutes, like what the price is. I'm like, I don't need to know that. That's not why. That's not my <laughs> thinking about this. And you know, call me in five years and let me know what's going on. <laughs> 
I'm unless, laughing unless because it's I'm volatile and goes back down, and then I'll add more aggressively. But uh, you know, yeah, that's... for sure. I'm laughing because I've been very guilty of that recently. I, I just I didn't think I'd be uh, getting caught up in the in the memeing and uh, and whatever else. But every time <laughs> I, it's now it's like I actually used to use Twitter to try and gauge where the price was. You know, you, you know when it's pumping and you know when it's dumping. Everything else in the middle is is it, you, you don't need to know when it's dumping. It's right, okay. Where can I find some capital? I want to allocate. I want to start stacking even more aggressively. Uh, and when it's pumping, I just want to be there for the party with the boys and the girls on Twitter. That, that you know, it's changing people's lives, and it's just great to be such a part of that. Yeah, one one of the fascinating things that I found about this is that. Um, you realize that people have very strong opinions without a lot of knowledge. And, you know, people dismiss it um, without knowing anything about it. Oh, it's a Ponzi scheme. Well, I say, well, tell me why it's a Ponzi scheme. And they can't tell you why it's a Ponzi scheme. I, I said, I'll tell you why it's not a Ponzi scheme. And I said, nobody sold me anything. I opted into this, right? So I wasn't induced into this. I wasn't promised rewards. I, I wasn't told it couldn't. It would only go higher. Or I'm going to get X return from this. So I said, from that standpoint, it's absolutely not a Ponzi scheme. So then tell me why. And well, I just don't like it. I, I think the government, you know, they just come up with, you know, there's no real thought to it. Um, and I find there's a lot of that. And I say, okay, I move on. And then and then you find out, and it's from all walks of life, that some people just have an imagination, right? And they can embrace it very quickly. And I've I, I particularly find it where you're dealing with somebody like, you know, who comes from Latin America, they've seen in their own lifetime, their currencies get debased and their money gets squandered or their parents' money get taken away through inflation, et cetera. And they say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And you don't have to convince them too much. They say, okay, that's an avenue that I should be looking into. And they, they, they pick up it. So it's, it's really, it really reveals people's thinking. Um, in ways that, uh, uh, and, and I would say that's happening tr also on the political spectrum as well. So Bitcoin is one avenue, and then the political spectrum here in this country is is also doing the same thing. So it's been a fascinating time, actually. Yeah, I had a, a guest on the show recently who's uh, in in Turkey, Stackmore, and uh, he, that's his pseudonym, obviously. He was talking about, I asked him the question, when you're trying to explain it to people and you're trying to help people understand, orange pill them, whatever you want to call it, I'm guessing it's easier for you because you're in a country that is experiencing hyperinflation right now. And you know the, 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 the value of your currency is going down almost daily. Uh, so people have that need. And he turned it back on me. He's like, that's not how I do it. The way I do it is I explain to them the people in the USA who have the strongest currency, the world's reserve currency, and are stacking harder than anyone. The biggest buying population is coming out of the US. So if those guys over there think they need Bitcoin, what makes you think you don't need Bitcoin? And he says that gets them almost every time. And I'd never thought about it that way. Right. That's, well, that's absolutely true. I, I think I think I have enough credibility with the people that I mention it to um, that people will buy it just on. And, and I, again, I tell them buy the amount that you're comfortable with. Everyone has a different amount. For some people, it's forty-two thousand dollars. For some people, it's seven hundred and twelve dollars. Whatever that number is for you, 
this is the amount that you should have to hedge yourself against a system that looks like it's clearly broken to me. <laughs> and it's mm. not going to get better anytime soon. And this might be a way off of that. Um, so most people, I think, engage on that. And except for the, you know, you run against, a, well, I think it's a Ponzi scheme. Okay, then I, I just move on. I, I try to give them a reason to explain why, and they never have a really good reason other than they have feelings about it. No, I've I've faced exactly the same. A friend asked me, "Okay, if I buy some Bitcoin, you know, do you get commission?" I'm like, "Oh, oh no, it, it's it. No, it's not a mark. It's not an MLM scheme. You know, it's uh, it's not that at all." But M- Michael Saylor makes a good point, and I'm going to change my language with it. Um, I was calling it cryptocurrency, and I think he's right. I think if you try to basically encroach upon fiat fiat currency, the pushback from the governments would be harder. So I'm, I'm now referring it to crypto asset and view it as an asset. It's, it's like it's an alternative to gold as a, as a selling point. Um, so that's that's kind of been my change more recently as picking it up from your, the, actually your podcast, uh, listening to that. Uh, and, I, and I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that, that uh, episode with you and, and Michael. Michael Stella's language is about talking about not using currency as a as a phrase and it, it invites the governments around the world to become fearful that it's going to encroach upon fiat currency so talking about crypto assets and I, that so more recently i've stopped referring to it as cryptocurrency and i'm referring to it as a crypto asset and hoping it, yes. that's a new asset class that's not going to compete with the fiat currencies of the world it's an interesting point when he brought that up it, it made me made me realize that for sure we need to change our language around it for sure, hundred percent. And uh, you know, speaking with Jeff about it as well um, after the show, and uh, and actually a couple of weeks ago about Bitcoin being mentioned in the boardroom, you can't you can't go in there and expect people to to pick up on the nuances. It's got it's got to be presented in such a way that the boardroom is used to things being presented. And if you go in there all like crazy Bitcoin guy, that just isn't going to work at all. Um, and now you you know if you if you're talking about it to your friends using just using the, the the term like savings account is the kind of thing I'm I'm trying to you know permeate into friends and family now. Same, I, you know, it's it's an excellent point. Uh, you know, everything that he said the other day, I agree with, and particularly from a selling point of of Bitcoin and the adoption of it. Um, truly, it it really is probably the world's best savings account right now um, in the history of saving accounts. And people should take some portion of their money and, and wealth and put it into that savings account. Um, and they're likely to see, I don't, I don't really view, it's funny, I don't, I don't view Bitcoin going up in price. I view currencies collapsing in price. And it just requires more dollars to buy the same number of Bitcoins. And that's really what it is. It's the awakening to the fact that currencies are basically losing significant value and the faith in that people have in them probably are not justified and there's a better alternative out there. Um, so I think that's that's probably the proper way to think about it. Yeah. Okay, well, we will uh, we will wrap it up because I've, I've taken up over an hour of your time, Peter. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I, I do want to ask... Uh, 
Did we did we close out on the orange pill question, or do you want me to throw it at you? So th- th- throw it at me, but I, I'm going to give you a similar response. So, you know, so we'll just repeat it twice. <laughs> if you had one orange I mean, pill I, left to give, who would you give it to, and why? So, so again, I would, I would, um, you know, this this is a really a transformative new technology, and I would say that you know trying to help those people that are most concerned with their future financial safety and alleviating worry are the people that I would most want to target. I don't feel any need to orange pill Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, um, even though they could bring a lot of money to it. Um, so my, 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 uh, my kind of role has been more bottoms up. And I think in terms of what I've done is actually commendable. And I hope to get you know more involved with it and basically help alleviate some of the stress that they have in their lives. Yeah, it's a great answer. Well, Peter, how can people come and find you or learn more about Horizon and reach out to you if they are in need of, of your services? Sure. So we, we have a website, horizonkinetics.com. And then uh, we have a media presence uh, called Ideas at Horizon Kinetics on Twitter. Um, that people should follow. There's excellent research that's there. Um, I, I kind of make people laugh because I say, personally, I don't really post much or, or do much. Um, I probably should start if I have something interesting to say. Uh, but I've really been just using it as a resource. And, and, and one of the things that I had opened a Twitter account a number of years ago, but I never really went on it. I don't have a Facebook or anything like that. One of the things that really changed my opinion of it um, and getting on Twitter in particular was the 2016 election in the United States and seeing how powerful Twitter was to basically the, the candidacy of, of Donald Trump and, and helping him get elected. I said, essentially, this guy really used Twitter and red hats to basically circumvent two major established political parties. Um, so that, that was really, I said, okay, that, that's something that you need to pay attention to um, because if, if this technology has that type of power, that's that's worth worthy of attention. Bitcoin is going to be that for the monetary network. Um, so that that's really the best analogy. And and look and and viewing that old Steve Jobs interview, really understanding the network effect of that. And 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 what Michael said and and helped crystallize it was, this is really the operating system for that network. And all of the layers that are going to be built on top of that is just going to create the demand for the coin. Um, and you know, obviously you believe it, I believe it, and, and I think we're going to see it in, in, in the not-too-distant future because it's people are becoming just so much more aware of it. Yes, they are. And again, thank you so much for coming on and all the work that you've, you've done in the past and uh, may, may you appear on many other podcasts uh, because, uh, you know, getting an insight into this knowledge, uh, I know you've been on Pomps. Uh, that's how I heard of you and... Um, well, actually, it's it's been great to get to know you and uh, get an insight as to what is going on behind uh, the closed doors of some of these these huge institutions that people on the street we just we we don't get access to to the thinking to what's going on there and to what you guys are doing and to why you're doing it and to the reasons behind it 
and your vision and your future. So thank you so much for sharing everything and uh, really appreciate you coming on. You're welcome and, and congratulations on all your success. And you've been a, a great resource to me and um, I'll continue to listen. And I listened to the Ken Robinson video that you sent, uh, not video, but the podcast as well as the TED Talk. Um, very, very amusing, very, very worth listening to. I had my whole family listen to it as well. So <laughs> thank you for educating the world. Thank you, Peter. And uh, until the next time, I really appreciate it. Hey, guys, thank you for listening. And thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to come on. I hope you enjoyed that, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it, Peter, as well, coming on, talking about Bitcoin uh, and, you know, giving back to the community and giving us an insight as to what happens within one of these you know, big funds. And to hear you talking about Bitcoin and your deep understanding on it is really, really refreshing and amazing to see the kind of things that, uh, that you guys are thinking about. What blew me away personally was the mining operation. That I just uh, was not really, um, I, I wasn't, obviously I'd heard uh, you, you mentioned it on, on Pomp's podcast, but I didn't realize how deep you guys had gone into this thing, into the weeds, and, and how you're looking to do much more of this in the future, and how you see the mining industry as becoming like the, the biggest, a huge, huge business. And that's uh, very interesting that uh, a wealth management company would be this deep into it and owning mining facilities and building out mining facilities. That's uh, that's really interesting. Many of us just believe or think about uh, wealth management funds or hedge funds as just going in and, and just buying, you know, like GBTC or uh, perhaps buying through an exchange and doing some kind of self-custody. But clearly, if Horizon or anything to go by that, that is not the case. There's, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and in a big way. I mean, these are big numbers that we're talking about. So that's, uh, that was very eye-raising. <clears throat> Uh, uh, excuse me, eyebrow raising, eye opening. And I, I've dug out, uh, I'll put in the show notes, the, the the link to that Steve Jobs interview that Peter referenced in our podcast. Uh, that is very, very interesting. And it would be amazing if, you know, if he was around now, what he would be thinking about Bitcoin. Uh, because when you see the interview, uh, it will all make uh, a lot more sense when you uh, when you look at that. It's really cool. Definitely go and check it out. And thanks, Peter, for bringing that up. Um, if you guys uh, are looking to um, to reach out to Peter, make sure you um, go through and check out Horizon Kinetics. You'll be able to find out more about the company on their website and, and reach out to him there, or just ping me a message and uh, we can put you in touch. I think it's really interesting for people that are looking to have money managed and maybe th- th- this might lean more towards the, the high net worth individual or the the boomer crowd that are, are looking to place money with a trusted company that can diversify their portfolio into Bitcoin and, and have it all looked after and, and professionally managed. So that's definitely something worth considering. I'm sure for the younger guys, the more tech savvy that are out there buying their own and self-custodying, that's obviously the the way to go. But it's amazing seeing the different options being built around Bitcoin and the different avenues that we can now start opening up 
doors to to everybody and that uh, of course is truly important so anyway i will sign off really appreciate everybody listening and liking sharing commenting the show reviewing really goes a long way thank you thanks again to coinfloor coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bits and if you're in the uk you can go start stacking some sats and again to our guy our friends cousins brothers sisters over in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Go start stacking your sats with the team over there at Swan. Both of these companies have brilliant customer service. They'll hold your hand through it. Don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you buying your first bunch of sats and setting up auto buys. This is the time. Let's go. Thanks everybody for listening. Big shout out to the Britcoiners over at 21ism. Love what you're doing. Go and check those out. And uh, thank you again at Adam Woodhams One for producing the show, at Jim Reaper Music for the website. That's once-bitten.com. Look forward to the next show, guys. Thank you so much. Take care.